0: All right, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. I'm going to add my welcome to the welcomes that you've already received uh, this morning. And, uh, you know, as, as Hannah shared, we're having this time of a today. We'd love all of you to come. Uh, I have to confess when she says, I have something fresh for you, what that means is I have nothing prepared. And we're just going to let, we're going to allow the Spirit to be the one to direct and to guide. Uh, our time together. Um, We want it to be interactive and an opportunity for you guys to ask questions. So so come out if you can. We won't be there a full hour, you know, maybe 45 minutes or so, just depending on how things go. But just an opportunity to huddle up uh, each and every month and just to look at different aspects of things that will help to equip us to do the things that the Lord has called us to do. And as she said, we're starting out this month just kind of looking at Uh, what's a Calvary Chapel and why do we do things the way that we do things and where did this all start and uh, where do we find it in the Bible and all that kind of stuff. So anyway with that um, if you don't have a Bible this morning you're going to need one. Uh, So we have them for you. Just raise your hand and we'll grab one for you and if you don't have one you can make that Bible uh, a gift to you from the Lord. Anybody need a Bible today? Anybody? Awesome. So turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to look Uh, At verses 10 through 31 this morning, as we continue to look at the life of one of the most remarkable men in all of human history, Uh, and that's, of course, the Apostle Paul, who is still known to us in our text today as Saul of Tarsus. And this man would have, uh, there's no one who would have a greater impact on the lives of more people Than this man, besides, of course, uh, Jesus himself. And I think the impact of the life of the Apostle Paul cannot be overstated. Uh, And it reaches, in fact, deep into this very room this morning. It reaches right into the lives and right into the hearts. Of So many of us here in this room today, you know, we read his letters to the churches and they're filled with such passion and they're filled with such insight and we hear the voice of the spirit as he speaks so clearly and so powerfully through Paul's writings and really reveals to us these mysteries of heaven. You know, we're going to watch as we read in the rest of the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, the way we're going to see he was fearless and he was undaunted by all of the opposition that would come against him. Just this way, he led this life that was sold out for Jesus Christ in a way that we sometimes can't even conceive of. And what we're going to see, though, in our text this morning, in the story of the great Apostle Paul is that there was still a great deal of preparation, which yet had to be laid kind of as a a foundation for his ministry. All of this extraordinary ministry that the Lord was going to accomplish through him. And we're going to see that the Lord would use two very ordinary believers, right? Believers just like you, believers just like me. And he's going to use these men at this critical juncture to help to accomplish that work of preparation in Paul's life. And I think that it's their examples this morning, as we'll see, that should be uh, equally encouraging uh, to each and every one of us here today. So let's pray and just let's ask the Lord to uh, really bless Our time as we look at the word this morning. Father, we thank you for um, this place that you've provided, Lord, and this time that you set aside for us each and every week that we can come together, Lord, and that we can be refreshed in our spirits as we worship you, Lord, and we can be built up in our faith, Lord, as uh, we hear from you through your word. Lord, we pray uh, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what he would say to each one of us individually, Lord, as well as to your church collectively, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember when we last left Saul, he was sitting sightless there in Damascus. He'd been led into the city by the hand like kind of a helpless child. He'd been humbled there on the road to Damascus. We said he was blinded by the light right, of the glory of Jesus who actually appeared to him there from heaven. It knocked him right off of his high donkey, we said, to the ground where he suddenly surrendered. right? He sort of gave up this long fight that he'd been having in his heart against the Lord Jesus. And remember when we left off in verse 9 of chapter 9, Luke told us that Saul was three days without sight and that he neither ate nor drank. So three days blind as that image of Jesus Christ in glory, right? The last thing he'd seen before he lost his sight, that image that he'd seen was now permanently etched on those newly opened eyes of his heart. And so we read next in verse 10, it says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Now, we don't know anything else at all about this Ananias, either from before or from anything we'll read after he meets here with Saul. We don't know how he came to be at Damascus. We don't know what happened to him afterward. He's simply, what, a certain disciple. So from what we do know, we would think of him just as your everyday, ordinary, average follower of Jesus. He is not an apostle. He's not a prophet. He's not a pastor. He's not an evangelist, an elder, or a deacon. And in this case, I believe that this is precisely why the Lord would be able to use him in this specific situation because he was ordinary. Now, if an apostle or if one of the other sort of prominent people from the growing church had come and ministered to Saul, then people later could have said that Paul had received his gospel from a man instead of from Jesus. And if you read any of Paul's writings, you see that that would prove to be a very critical distinction of Paul's later ministry. So just even here in the example of Ananias, we should all take heart in our own service and our efforts for the Lord that there are very often things that a certain disciple can do that a celebrity disciple can't do. Ways that we're able to reach in, ways that we're able to to touch lives. And so, of course, even though Ananias was this man that we're saying may have been ordinary, we see that he was selected specifically. He was called uniquely. And the Lord Jesus is appearing to him here in a vision personally, right, with with this certain task for this certain disciple. Again, God has to use a certain disciple at certain times because he has a special work for them to do. They've been prepared uniquely. They've been called selectively. And we see here that they're available readily. Right? God loves to use people to assist in the work that he's doing in people. And here Ananias is a willing servant. Notice the Lord calls on him in this supernatural, this special way. And Ananias simply says, what? Here I am, Lord. It's just like what we finally heard Saul say last week when he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? In verse 11, it says, so the Lord Jesus said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now don't we wish that all of the Lord's direction for us was just as detailed as this? Right. we said the lord had a specific ministry for this certain disciple right clearly he go to a specific street right the street called straight straight street which by the way is still there in damascus it's one of the the main road that runs from east to west throughout the downtown section So he was to go to this specific street, and he said that there you'll find a specific house, right? The house of Judas. And inside that specific house, you'll find a specific man, Saul of Tarsus, doing a specific thing that he would be praying. And by the way, that specific man has also had the very same specific vision with all of these same specifics, specifically the fact that you... Are specifically coming to heal him of his specific infirmity, right? Now, how come the Lord doesn't speak to us with this same, you know, these same specifics? Well, the truth is sometimes he probably does. And yet, in this case specifically, (laughs) this was so important because understand that God was asking Ananias to do something here that was big, right? something here that was bold, something here that would certainly seem to be dangerous. He's asking him to go seek out this man who was the great persecutor against the church. And so Ananias was going to need these points of confirmation along the way that it was God truly who was guiding him. And surely in something like this, this is something we probably all have experienced to some degree. The Lord maybe has called us to do something which seemingly was surprising. And as we stepped out and we started those first steps of faith, kind of walking in that instruction, what do we find? We find that door after door after door just seemed to begin to open up to us. Right, it's like, well, here I am on Straight Street, and oh, look, there's that house of the guy named Judas, and you know, knock, 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 and you know, hey, is there by chance a guy named Saul that's staying here? Oh, there is. Okay, well, you say he's in the back. Oh, and he's oh, he's praying. Is that what he's doing? Okay, well, oh, and I need to go to him because oh, because he's blind. Oh, but he had some sort of vision, right, that said that he's expecting me to come? Okay, Lord. And that's the point where we say, I guess this is actually you leading me in this. And I love that there was nothing left to chance, right? This was a a divinely ordained encounter because God was working to redeem and to restore the life of Saul. And he was using ordinary Ananias in an extraordinarily ordinary way, right? As we said from a couple weeks back. Incidentally, we could hardly read through these verses without noticing. Did you notice the Lord was using a man named Ananias to visit the home of another man named Judas to reach out to a man named Saul? Now, those names ought to ring bells for us, right? Ananias and Judas, of course, are two names that are infamous in the New Testament. Judas, of course, the betrayer of Jesus. And remember, the other Ananias was the liar of the early church, struck down dead back in chapter 5. And most certainly when we think about the name Saul, right, shared by the, the first failed king over the nation of Israel, Saul is not a name that exactly conjures up any images of spiritual success, right, or, or, or perfection, But it's almost as though the Lord is doing something neat here. I don't think this is just a strange coincidence. But in a sense, I believe that he's redeeming these names in the very same way that he continues his redemptive work in people. And that's just a little extra freebie to throw out for you or to think about on a Sunday morning. So here's God working, right? He's working at both ends of this line. right? We see that Ananias, though, we're going to find out, though he's available for this assignment, he certainly doesn't appear to be too anxious, especially once he learns all of the specifics. It says in verse 13 that then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests To bind all who call on your name. Now, I think we might probably admit that there are times when it actually is better that the Lord didn't give us all the specifics about a certain situation. He didn't give us all the details right up front, because we would have to agree that the objections here of Ananias are pretty logical. These are pretty well founded concerns, especially since. Ananias wasn't here with us last week when we all got to read about Saul's conversion. He probably knew nothing about it, right? So he's saying, Lord, maybe you've, are you sure you've got the right guy here? Maybe you missed something. Let me help you out, Lord. And then Ananias, right, he's doing what we so often do. He starts to instruct the Lord. He's trying to fill in the blanks And tell the Lord the things that he obviously has missed. It's like when we say, well, Lord, I I know you want me to really forgive that person. But let me remind you of all the things that they did to me. And the problem, of course, when we start counseling God, or one of the many problems, is that we never know the full story. We never know what he's done down on that other End of the line, or we certainly don't know what he's planning to do with that person or what he's planning to do in that situation. I read a story that many years ago there was a frustrated school teacher who actually pinned a note on the coat of a little boy before sending him home from school. And this woman was at the sort of the proverbial end of her rope with this kid. She'd done everything she could to try to educate this boy, and now she saw no potential, no reason, no purpose for him to continue to come to school. And so the little note that she put on his coat and sent him home, she says, keep this boy at home. He's too stupid to learn. And that little boy was Thomas Edison, right? One of the greatest inventors in history. So of course, he wasn't too stupid to learn, but this teacher simply failed to see the potential that was there in him. So God saw what Saul could become, but Ananias only knew what Saul had been. And God says, hey, you see a hateful murderer, but I actually see a selfless servant. All you can see is a hardened heart, but what I see is the, the beating heart of the Christian faith. And Ananias, I'm already working. See, the fact that Saul was praying instead of persecuting should have been the first encouragement for Ananias. Spurgeon says that prayer is the autograph of the Holy Ghost upon the renewed heart. And I love this because instead of rebuking Ananias for his hesitation, right, I think almost understanding his reaction What the Lord's about to do is he's going to let Ananias in on the heavenly purpose and on the plans that he has for this man Saul. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So the Lord had these wonderful plans for Saul, but the road getting there was not going to be an easy one at all. This broken, this blind, this currently afflicted man that Ananias was about to meet was going to be used by the Lord, as we said, to change the course of human history. Primarily, of course, we see that the apostle was going to be uh, called primarily to the Gentile world and that his commission was going to bring him to stand and to testify of Jesus before kings. But to do this, The Lord was going to require Saul to leave this life of privilege that he'd had to really embrace this higher call. And it was going to be something that wasn't going to come without much suffering. And what we know is that the Lord had already been preparing Saul for this purpose from his birth. So long before there appeared anything worthy in Saul to choose Again, God knew he saw what he could make out of Saul. And so we have this man whose religious resume was unparalleled. You know, as he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, you know, he says he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. We know he was educated at the feet of the great Rabbi Gamaliel. Saul had this brilliant mind, and he had this wonderfully Jewish understanding of the Jewish scriptures, and it was unmatched at the time. And Saul also, in addition to this religious resume, he had a social standing that was uniquely orchestrated and planned for this purpose. You see, he was born and raised not in Jerusalem, but actually outside of Israel. And that because he was you know, a Jew, he was born to a family that enjoyed the privilege of Roman citizenship. So, of course, he too was also a Roman citizen. And we're going to see that this would be his passport later to travel freely throughout the Roman Empire under the protection of the Roman Emperor, which we're going to see all through the, this book. That's going to prove to be invaluable and indispensable to his mission and his ministry now for the Lord. We see there he was born in Tarsus. It's what we would call today would be part of modern Turkey. And the city of Tarsus was a a university town. It was a, a city that was a center of learning and it was a hub of intellect. And this would be the place where Saul was able to really sharpen that incredible legal mind that the Lord had given him. And we can go on and on and on looking at these things, but what we see is that the Lord was about to redeem every part of every experience of Saul's previous life in order to prepare him for his present calling and his future life that he had planned for him. And I think it's important for us to remember that in God's economy nothing is ever wasted right saul was this chosen vessel and understand this tune in if you've tuned out right as you sit here this morning understand that saul had this unique ministry we just said he had this calling to bear the name of jesus before the world and though saul's ministry was unique it wasn't exclusive So what I mean by that, I I think, in fact, we could safely say that the Lord Jesus would probably make the very same statement, you know, that he is a chosen vessel of mine. I think that the Lord would say that to about half of the people in this room here this morning. And to the other half, I think that we would safely say that he would say, she is a chosen vessel of mine. You get my point? We are all chosen vessels. We've all been no less uniquely prepared for the very specific plans that the Lord has for us. And I think as we look back, we can see the ways that for each one of us individually, the Lord has redeemed our pasts. He's redeemed all those years when we were living for ourselves and we had no thought for him. He's redeemed all those times that we were, you know, pushing the boundaries of human experience in our own very self-determined, even rebellious ways. We're out there chasing after the things of the world. And yet the Lord has used every bit of it to perfectly position us to minister to those people that he knows he's going to bring into our lives. There are people that you can reach who I could never hope to reach. And there are people who will relate to my story who may never connect with yours. And again, it's our stories that connect us to people and then give place for our testimony as we share about the overwhelming and the redeeming grace of God and the way it's worked in our own lives. You know, one of my life verses is a promise that the Lord made to Israel. It's Joel 2.25. Where the Lord says to Israel, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So all of those years, 30 of them in my case, All those years wasted and ravaged by sin, the Lord has promised that he's able to restore. And if you read on in that verse, it talks about the crawling locust and the consuming locust and the chewing locust. And maybe there's some of you that have had some of those very same locusts that infested your lives the way that they infested mine. And maybe there's even a few of those little buggers still swarming around at times, right? But the Lord says that he can restore all of that damage that's been done until it finally says at the end, in verse 26, it says that you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And so we can look now at our lives And we can see the way the Lord is working towards that beautiful place. And yet, here's where we run into the irony of the Christian life. We see it there in verse 16. Just as in the life of Saul, who would become known as the great apostle Paul, who would reshape the world as we know it, all of this blessing would come from brokenness. See, in the text... Verse 15 comes as a result of verse 16. Where Jesus says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. So the Lord uses our our present suffering. He uses our past preparation to prepare us for that future glory that he has for us. And for Paul, ultimately that would include... All the things he writes there to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about labors more abundant and stripes above measure and prisons more frequently, deaths more often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I've spent in the deep in journeys often. Perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst, fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides, he says, the other things that come upon me daily in his deep concern for the churches that's a big, long list, right? Pretty comprehensive. And yet it was all of this that made Saul Paul. That's what gave him the powerful ministry that he had. And so what is it for you this morning? It might not be stripes or stonings or shipwrecks, but there are, of course, perils of other kinds. There's perils of trauma, right? There's Crisis, there's sickness, there's betrayal and hurt or consequences from our own past decisions. So whatever they are in your life, try not to shy away from them, but do your best to really lean into them. And knowing that the Lord is using those very things to refine you because you too are a chosen vessel. and God is working in you, again, to work through you and to accomplish all of these different purposes that he has planned for you. And so often, isn't it so true, like Saul, we just need the help of a, a certain disciple maybe to come along and encourage us. The name Ananias comes from the name Hananiah, which means the Lord is gracious. So, watch the way that the Lord is graciously, he's graciously sent him to minister to Saul. It says in verse 17 that Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, There fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. What an incredible picture of what was surely an incredible moment. Notice all the fear that Ananias had about Saul was transformed into this love he now had for Saul because of the assurance that he received from Jesus. And we just picture Ananias walking into that room and seeing poor Saul sitting there all alone in silence. And we imagine the way Saul's heart had to have leapt when Ananias came over and just tenderly touched him. And he said, what? Brother Saul. He didn't say brutal Saul. He didn't say bruiser Saul. He didn't say you bully Saul which all of those things at one time had been true, hadn't they? He said, Brother Saul, because that was his new reality. He'd been born again. He'd been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, back on that road leading to Damascus. And now here in this home in Damascus, now he was being welcomed into the family of God. He was filled with the Spirit. He had a sight Restored by the Lord, and all of it came through the laying on of hands of this very ordinary, regular, certain disciple. Right? For three days, Jesus had been healing him of this spiritual blindness, and now he heals him finally and fully of his physical blindness. God has done a pretty effective job of breaking Saul, right? emptying him of his old fleshly self and yet his intention was never to leave Saul empty but God needed to break Saul and empty Saul so that he could what? Fill him up with his spirit and then keep him filled. Now for those of you who are keeping track this is that upon experience of the spirit that we've seen so far and is available to each and every one of us here today. Right? He's with us Before our conversion, he comes to be in us at the moment of our conversion, but then he can come upon us, right? First initially, but then repeatedly as we ask when we need to be supernaturally empowered for specific ministry or or to enjoy a specific victory in our lives. And the key, as we see in the example of Saul here, is that we need to be empty of ourselves before we can be filled again with the Holy Spirit. That pride, that self-focus, envy, anger, whatever it is that's of the flesh. This is, again, where we see that blessing of brokenness, right? The fruit of suffering, it comes to bear in our life as the Lord allows these things to break us down so that he can be the one to fill us up. For Saul... His new, this incredible journey was just about to start. And he begins first by being broken and then being refilled and then being baptized. Separately, right? He wants to immediately identify with Jesus. He wants to be identified with the disciples of Jesus. He needs to cut himself off from the unbelieving nation of Israel and connect himself With the risen Christ. So he was healed. He was filled. He then got baptized. And it says in verse 19. So when he had received food. He was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days. With the disciples. At Damascus. If you read the King James Version. It says there that he received meat. And I like that right. Saul received meat. Meat. He was strengthened. And now he sat with the very disciples that he had come initially to Damascus to torment. And of course, it shows us this radical transformation of his nature. But also, doesn't it show us the way that the Lord must have powerfully worked in their hearts as they received him in to be with them? And it's at this point, curiously, that our friend Ananias, who's been used so powerfully and so specifically, who, who's been walking so obediently, Ananias disappears entirely from the entire narrative. And all we see is one very brief mention of him, again in chapter 22, and it's only because Paul himself is recounting this very same story. Ananias, right? The certain disciple he simply accepted what God saw by faith, and the way that he looked at Saul changed completely. And this man, Ananias, helped to pave the way to a life of ministry that would change history. So the disciples in Damascus, right, they open up their hearts, they open up their homes to Saul. And next we're going to see that he made his way right there, To the synagogues, it says immediately, verse 20, he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Now, Saul started where he was and he preached what he knew, right? Which incidentally is a great model for all of us as believers, isn't it? And what Saul knew was that the very same Jesus whom he had persecuted was the actual Son of God. Now, just to quickly clarify, some people think that when Jesus is called the son of God, it's a way of saying that he's not God. Maybe it's something less than actually being God, that he's only the son of God. But in Jesus' day and in Jewish thought, everyone knew what this title would have meant. Because to be called the son of something meant that you were totally identified with that thing or with that person. Their identity was your identity. And the couple times that we saw Jesus call himself the son of God in John 5 and Matthew 26, all the other times when other people called him the son of God, everyone knew that that was a clear claim to his deity. And so Saul is driving this point home in the very synagogues where he had been headed with those letters remember from the high priest to drag those believers back to Jerusalem and because speaking of of you know prepared in advance because Saul was a known respected skilled student of that great rabbi gamaliel he could take advantage of a custom within each synagogue that would have invited such a respected man to stand up and to speak from the scriptures at any meeting whenever they were present. Oh, Saul, come, you know, would you like to share? Well, yes, of course, I would love to share something with you. And imagine how he spoke from the scriptures, right? Demonstrating the deity of Jesus. So much so, it says in verse 21, that all who heard were amazed. They said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He'd gone to Damascus to persecute the church and he ends up preaching the Christ Instead, it's no wonder the Jews here at Damascus were amazed. Literally, it means baffled or bewildered or confused. Never forget, it's so true that our most powerful witness is very often to the very people who knew us before we were converted. And I will admit, sometimes it seems like life would be easier. If we could just minister somewhere where we were a little bit more unknown, right, where our past might not get in the way of the things that we have to share. And yet I have to say, I love Saul's heart here. He stands up, he says, look, I'm a changed man and I am determined that those who knew me best should know it. Already he's proclaiming what he'd later write to the Romans that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And already he's proving what he would write to the Corinthians, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And here we see that Paul lived that verse long before he would ever write it. And notice this too, speaking of a this afternoon, that the more he ministered, the more it says he increased in strength. Because what we find is that whenever we seek to serve others, God brings more strength to us for more service. I, I think there's no question that some of the best training for the ministry is just to jump in and to start doing the work of the ministry and then to watch in amazement at the ways that the Lord will supernaturally stretch and increase what you're doing. And yet, watch this. What we see next, even in this, even as Saul was increasing in strength, though Saul in these synagogues may have indeed won the debate, he still wasn't winning their hearts because there was more work that had to be done in his own heart. Look what it says in verse 23. It says that after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, there's more here to the story. Because what Luke leaves out here in an effort just to compress the narrative, he leaves out some of what happens during these many days that we see in this verse. Now, Galatians chapter 1, Paul explains how he went away to the Arabia Desert for a period of time, and then he returned to Damascus. And many Bible students would place that trip to the desert right here between verses 22 and 23 that had happened during these many days. So the story is after his initial attempts there in the synagogues at Damascus, the Lord called Saul to step away from those daily demands of this newfound ministry because the Lord knew that he still needed to shape Saul. And he needed to do it directly and he needed to do it individually and very personally. There were so many things which would have to be clarified in Saul's mind. There was direct revelation that he needed from Jesus before he could truly fulfill that purpose and that high calling that he had. And like we said, there was still some heart surgery that had to be done. And so Saul takes off for the desert possibly even to the very same area there where Mount Sinai was. And there, we see that this Old Testament scholar, you know, par excellence, was enrolled in this three-year course taught by the Holy Spirit on how every symbol and every sacrifice and every picture in the Old Testament related to the person of Jesus Christ. You may have heard it said that seminarians today graduate from a seminary with a DD, right? A doctorate of divinity. And yet Saul graduated with a much more powerful DD. He had a doctorate of the desert, right? <laughs> We're going to see uh, Paul later defending his call to be an apostle. He says, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that happened here in the desert. Those things that the Lord Jesus need to reveal to Paul personally that were just for him. You know, you look through the scriptures and many of God's most used servants had a desert or a wilderness experience before they could be released back by the Lord to finally fulfill that calling that he had for them. We think first and foremost, we've been reading about it, the children of Israel, right? Stuck right now in the book of Numbers in the wilderness, you think about Joseph and Moses and Elijah and uh, King David and John the Baptist and Jesus himself and probably each and every one of us in this room this morning. Because the truth is that God leads most believers into the desert at one time or another. You know, a prolonged sickness or a prolonged time of grief can be a desert, Moving to a new place or even joining a new church where you don't know anybody, that can be a desert. You know, maybe you're stuck in a miserable or a boring job instead of fulfilling this wonderful career that you'd hoped for. Well, that can be a desert. A rebellious child, an unbelieving spouse, right? All of these things can be a desert. And also, it can be a time of rebellion in our own hearts, and we banish ourselves, don't we, to the backside of the desert. And so often while we're there in that desert, it may feel like God's not really doing anything. It may feel like God's just kind of set us aside, and yet God is always at work. He's always using our desert experiences. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, To the children of Israel he says you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you he allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you do not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. So deserts, they humble us. Deserts reveal to us those things that are in our own hearts. Desert experiences teach us to live by the word of God. They teach us that God can provide for us in any kind of circumstance. They teach us to obey the Lord. Those desert experiences provide us the opportunity to just reflect and to refocus on the spiritual realities in our lives. Because all of that, the, the lushness, if you will, of the material world is kind of stripped away from our senses. All we're left with is the barrenness of, of this wilderness experience that we're in the middle of, and we have no choice but to turn our hearts toward God and really discover the things that are important in our lives. And in this, those desert experiences that we go through are always meant to prepare us for something greater. So if you're in the desert right now, just know that God is at work in your life. Don't despair Just trust God. He's still doing great things in you. Just like he's doing here in the desert in Saul. He's preparing him for these things that would be ahead of him. So after his time there in the desert, he returns back to Damascus. And that's when we see in verse 22, he continues to confound the Jews, right? In their desperation, in verse 23, it says all they could do was plot to kill him. And this begins the starting of those many things he must suffer for my sake that Jesus promised to show Saul in verse 16. Saul was now the persecuted instead of the persecutor. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. and They watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, let him down through the wall in a large basket. So so desperate, so determined were these Jews to kill Saul that they set a guard on the city gates to make sure he couldn't escape. And Saul soon learned of this, right? So what he learned is he learns of the Lord's divine protection in the face of persecution. He also learned, I think, that God's deliverance very often comes in humbling ways because there is nothing triumphant about being sneaked out of sneaked snuck sneaked out of the city under the cover of night in a basket lowered down the wall with ropes this was probably not the triumphant end to his ministry there that Saul had had uh, predicted so here he's barely beginning his new adventure with Christ. And even here, he's just escaping death by the skin of his teeth. It doesn't slow him down a bit. Look what it says in verse 26, that when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. So he gets run out of Damascus, and Saul heads right away straight down to Jerusalem where he's rejected even by the believers, even three years after he'd been converted. And yet understand, news then didn't travel quite as fast as news does now. They couldn't just follow his Insta, right? They couldn't simply subscribe to his blog or get his tweets, you know, sent to him. They may have thought that Saul was part of an elaborate plot, right, to go undercover and to To trap them. Maybe they wondered why in the world, where did this guy disappear to for three years off in the desert by himself? Probably also they were reluctant to believe such a radical testimony of transformation without actually seeing it with their own eyes. And what about this? Some of these Jerusalem believers were very likely those who had lost loved ones or maybe even been persecuted personally. At the hands of Saul. And even though Saul may have understood this, things seemed pretty hopeless at this point, right? They continued to reject him. That language there in verse 26 is that he kept trying to get into their fellowship and they kept rejecting him until finally, verse 27 But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Thank God for people like Ananias and Barnabas who welcome people into the family of God with just open arms and friendship. Now, we met Barnabas before, back in chapter 4 in the early days of the church. We said then that his name means son of encouragement. And here he was, a huge encouragement to Saul. He says, hey guys, give Saul a break. He really has had an experience with the Lord. I saw him preaching there at Damascus, preaching Jesus. So Barnabas was a guy who insisted on believing the best about other people. He was a man who never held anyone's past against them. And it's so often, too often the case that because someone once made some kind of a mistake, that forever they're condemned. And yet, isn't it the great characteristic of the heart of God that he hasn't held our past sins against us? And so we as Christians should never, ever condemn a person because they once had failed. It says in Ephesians 4 that we should be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So with Barnabas testimony, Saul's received by the believers, he immediately begins to minister in that city. Verse 29 says he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So this is starting now to become a pattern, isn't it, in Saul's life. This time it was the Greek-speaking Jews who plotted Saul's death, even though he was once one of these guys. And yet the believers found out again, this time because the Lord actually warned Saul in a vision And they smuggled him out of the city. They took him down to the seaport city of Caesarea. And they stuck him on a ship and sent him back to Tarsus where he came from. And where he will now spend nearly 10 more years living in obscurity. As the Lord just continued to prepare his chosen vessel. So it has been a bit of a rocky beginning here in this chapter in the ministry of the great apostle, hasn't it? He started at Jerusalem. He headed to Damascus, then to the desert, back to Damascus, down to Jerusalem, over to Caesarea, and now off to Tarsus. And in verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit... They were multiplied. Now, verse 31 and verse 30 are connected. When Saul finally was out of the way, the church prospered. Now, that's ironic because we would have thought that the church would have prospered more with this powerful ministry of this wonderful man of God amongst them, and yet that wasn't God's plan for Saul. So God allowed this persecution once again to direct his servant. When he had appeared to Saul and warned him about this plot, Acts 22 will learn, he says, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. God had told Ananias that Saul's ministry was to be first and foremost to who? The Gentiles secondly to kings and finally to the people of Israel and we have to believe he'd shared that also with Saul and yet I think because of his great love for his own people Saul is going to keep trying to minister to the Jews and just find himself and everybody else around him frustrated in the process. And that's an important thing for each of us because oftentimes the reason we get frustrated in trying to serve the Lord is because we're not serving him where we're supposed to be serving him. God calls certain servants to serve in certain places, in certain ministries, at certain times, and our role is to just recognize that and then to obey that calling, not the calling of somebody else. Now we're not going to see Saul again until the end of Acts chapter 11, where once again, 10 years from now, it's going to be Barnabas again who's going to find him and bring him into the church that's meeting there at Antioch. And they're going to start to minister together and establish this base of operations. And we're going to start to see the expansion of Paul's ministry and the spread of the gospel message. Now, as we quickly close this morning, right, we're considering this great man who would greatly change the world, right? This chosen vessel. What I really hope that we can take to heart and even hide there is the ways that we've seen the Lord Use these other ordinary men, right? these certain disciples who were no less God's chosen vessels, but they were chosen to minister to the great apostle, right, to prepare him for his ministry to the church and to the world. So the, the world first owes Paul to the preaching and then the prayer of Stephen at his death. The world then owes Paul to the forgiving spirit and the faith-filled obedience here of Ananias. And also we see the world owes Paul to this large heart of Barnabas. Right, Everyone else wanted nothing at all to do with Saul, but it was Barnabas who took him by the hand and brought him in and stood there by him. And for each of these men, all of what Paul would eventually accomplish would then be, as he would later write to the Philippians, it's going to be fruit that abounds to their accounts. There are no small gears in the machinery of God, right? Jesus saved you He has a plan for your life. You are a chosen vessel of God. Vessels come in all different shapes and sizes and colors. But the thing about all vessels is that they were all made to be filled up by God so that they could pour out his life into the world. So he has a very special and a very specific place for you to do this. And he has specific People, you know, for whom and to whom He wants you to bring His name and to share His love and ultimately to share with them the way that His grace has overwhelmed your life. Amen? Is that enough? I think that's enough for today. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning and we thank you so much for the examples, Lord, not just of the great Apostle Paul, Lord, but we thank you for the examples of these ordinary men, Lord, that were serving you in ordinary ways, Lord, and the ways that you used them extraordinarily in this um, man Saul's life. We thank you for Ananias, Lord, and for Barnabas, Lord, and pray that you would uh, help us to glean, Lord, from their ministry and their experience. Father, encourage us all, we pray, in the unique calling and the specific ministry that you've laid out for us. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.